0: Welcome to the Mango Solutions Data Driven Nirvana podcast series, where we'll be exploring a range of topics for businesses around data science and data engineering. I'm Dave Harris, and I'm joined today in the studio by Rich Pugh, the chief data scientist and co-founder of Mango, and David Gardner, who leads the data science team at Mango. And today we're going to be discussing some of the myths and mysteries that surround data science today. And we've entitled this episode, very provocatively, Lies damn lies, and data science. Make of that what you will. The beauty of data is that it should be binary. It is either right or it is wrong. But since the earliest of human times, people have been misrepresenting numbers, often with disastrous effects. So in this podcast, we're going to explore how to build trust in your data sources, ensuring that decision-making can be made with confidence based on the right data, delivered at the right time. So, Rich, can I turn to you first then and ask you about people misusing numbers, whether they do it deliberately or or by accident? I guess this has been a problem for a while.
1: Yep, absolutely right. So this is uh, obviously well-documented that uh eighty seven percent of statistics are made up, something like that, but that 's obviously <laughs> just a number um no <laughs> sorry that really was a joke um the yeah I, I think the challenge is right now, and the reason we wanted to include this as part of the uh, the, the, the podcast series was you know, in each of these podcasts right now, we talk about the importance of data as a way of doing business, right? So actually, you know, turning data into wisdom in order to drive decision-making. So what we're actually advocating is a different business model where we are driving decisions by mixing together the insight from um, analytic models with the human to, 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 to make decisions. The, the challenge with that, of course, is that the... Um, you know, the impact of incorrect statistics or incorrect data really can, uh, you know, know, we're kind of higher on, on, on the high wire at this point, right? Because you, you know, if you're going to actually run your business on data and the data is wrong or the decision is, you know, or the output is wrong, it can have disastrous commercial consequences. And therefore, that's really why this is a key topic right now for for organizations who are looking to put data more central to their business
2: it's only going to get worse right because what we're seeing at the moment is a lot of new software a lot of new technology out there incorporating more and more and more advanced methodology and techniques around data science statistics into packages that just anyone can pick up and use with minimal training you don't have to be a statistician anymore to do these things but of course the more powerful those things get with that great power comes more responsibility you know, if Ferraris were suddenly £5,000, a lot of 17-year-olds would be driving around them, and there'd be a lot more crashes at a lot higher speed. So we have to bring our skill level up, both in terms of deriving insights and in terms of interpreting them, or is, there is this danger that, as Rich said, things will get worse and worse, bigger impacts, bigger decisions going wrong. Mm.
1: And I think you're spot on there. You know, the, the skills and the technology, you know, I, I think are critical, right? Um Obviously, in this in this business around data science, people are investing in analytics and, and so on. So from a skills perspective, you end up with a lot more people who perhaps are not skilled enough in this practice who are coming in, passing themselves off as data scientists and, and driving decision makers. Right? So, you know, how, how do you become a data scientist? Well, you click edit on your LinkedIn profile. Right. That's kind of how you do it. And then the other side of it is you, you're spot on with the technology. I, I saw a presentation recently where a, a common uh, data platform has added an analytic model, a module. Um, uh, so what they're doing, they do, they, they demonstrated that it had some data and they had this lovely drop down and it had uh, you know loads and loads of different analytic approaches, like right? random forests and Bayesian hierarchical models, you, you name it, it was on this huge, huge drop down menu. And essentially, the, the sales pitch was, you know, we've got this technology, now you've got your data and now you can fit, even people without any analytic training can now fit the most you know, sophisticated analytic models. And as a statistician, that's like a, a a panic moment, right? And and actually during the demo, the sales guy was kind of saying, you know, well, I'll just pick a technique. I'll just drag that onto my canvas and I'll link that after my data and now I can run a model and, uh, you know, and, and it literally was, oh, I'll just pick one. I'll just pick, you know, clustering or I'll pick something. And you sit there going, wow, you know, if that's the way we're going, then the incidence of wrong decisions being made, it's just going to go up and up, right? If, if that's the way we're going to... Oh, you, you know, don't worry about assumptions, just drag one of these things on. I'll take the one at the top of the list, right? And I'll stick it in, and, and there we go, I've got a decision. And that's, that's the big fear for me.
0: So are we talking DIY data science here? The technology kind of allows it in theory, but in practice, you know, there's still a big human element, whether we like it or not.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's perfectly possible for a model to be mathematically correct so within that piece of technology doing that you know it makes sense with the numbers but conceptually it may be completely wrong you know there are instances where people are building predictive models where within the model is something exactly correlated with the output so yes you've built a fantastic model but of course it's fantastic because you know what the output's going to be given one of your inputs so yeah it's it 's a big problem where the more powerful these packages are that doesn 't mean we can interpret them and apply them in the correct way
0: and and do you think uh, rich that the business could be seduced by this you know big business who 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 are the ones that have most of this data, I suppose you know might think well, you know we can do it ourselves
1: yeah i, I think that's that 's kind of where we are, and I think this is where there 's a real challenge right now around the this sort of kind of hype and the marketing that that is being um kind of driven particularly by technology companies who who are are looking to sell data platforms so, you know, I see a lot of situations where, um, you know, sales and marketing effort goes into, you know, yeah, buy this platform, it's got AI in it, it's got analytics in it, and and you know, that enables you to actually make these decisions. And it's all wrapped up very neatly behind a button or behind a drop down. And, and, and it just kind of lulls you into the idea that, you know, now people who don't have analytic training, who are not data scientists, can somehow harness these things and make decisions. I, I It's a bit of extreme, you know, view, maybe, but... I would say that if you're if you're not trained in analytics and you pick I don't know any model you know you, you decide you're going to fit a mixed effects model to your data without knowing the assumptions and the mechanics of what you're actually doing you're going to get that wrong there there is there is for me there's no alternative that that's going to go wrong because it's these things are complex and sophisticated and without the right skills in place I think there there's going to be big consequences
2: and ironically of course, the more complex the methodology used, the more likely it is to go wrong, but equally the more confidence people can have in it. So if I walk in a room and say, oh, I've built a gradient boosted random forest middle of this, and goes, Oh, Dave knows what he's talking about. Yeah, this is this is definitely correct, isn't it? I've just typed that into a computer and it's given me an answer. I've, I have probably got it wrong, but everyone in the room's thinking it was using an advanced technique that must be really good. Then
0: I'm reminded a bit of the uh, of the sort of CAD revolution in the uh, when was that the '90s or, or, or I think or the early 2000s, where suddenly you know in theory if you worked in that world of architecture or design or whatever, suddenly everybody could be a draftsman, draftsperson, person uh, because the software was there to do these fantastic drawings, and 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 you could buy it pretty cheaply. Probably there were free versions as well, and. So everybody could design a house or a or a widget or whatever. But the reality was that the people that made the best use of it were the draftsmen, were the people that knew already knew how to draw. Given that we've established that statistics can be misconstrued or even, you know, misused on purpose, what are the impacts when people do get that wrong, Dave?
2: So ultimately, of course, the, the impact really of people start making the wrong decisions because they've got Information based on incorrect data, or as you said, it can be uh, misinterpreted. So, as we get more and more confident, rightly or wrongly, in the data that we're using, the insights we're given, we start to make bigger and bigger and bigger decisions with it. So, let's say, for example, you've got a predictive model and you're trying to work out how many cars you're going to shift in a certain market over the next year. So, obviously, you need to plan well ahead of time what your production line is going to be. If your model comes out with 30,000, but you get them out there and you find that demand's only there for 20, suddenly you've got to slash prices you've got to think about shifting across to other markets there are all kinds of costs and impacts incurred on in that because you believe in that decision based on the data so there's a clear impact there and actually i think that can be it. its most dangerous sometimes where you have got an established model of process in place. So if something's worked 10 times in a row before, you're quite happy to put, place big money on that bet for it happening again. But you know, if someone puts the wrong data in there, if the world changes in terms of the way the markets operate, if someone just plugs in the wrong calculation because they're not well-trained enough on how to use the tool, it's so something you have a lot of trust in, you've made a big decision, and that can go very wrong.
0: And presumably, Rich, that's that's a really important point that Dave raised there. You know, the, the outside forces, the forces beyond your control in the marketplace, they're very likely to change over time, aren't they?
1: I, I think there's a big part of that, right? I think we, we've talked in the past about how you... Uh, you really want to understand how to behave in a certain way, right? So let's imagine you build a, uh, you know, you build a, I don't know, an attrition model, right? You, you don't want people leaving your organization. You you want to retain the high-value people. So you build this attrition model and you have a behavioral element, right? Which is, you know, uh, the model suggests, let's say, you go and give person A a pay rise or whatever that is. Literally, as soon as you roll that model out, you are starting to behave in a different way, so you've changed all the parameters, right? So so the other part of this as well is that a model isn't just right or wrong. A model can also degrade or, it, you know, it can be, you know, fairly right you know. So, so you've got to be really, really careful about this and also um, someone who's a trained data scientist will be able to understand this change over time and will be able to adapt so that the you know the decisions continue to be right and not based on older data that, that isn't relevant because you've already started to behave a different way right? so th- there's gotchas like that all around becoming data-driven and if you don't have the right skills in-house to, to really understand this and the right governance really around it you, you can really get into a lot of trouble
0: And talking of governance, presumably there are ethical issues potentially here as well in the way that a company behaves or the way individuals behave for that matter, which could be affected by data-driven businesses.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think ethical, I guess, both from a regulatory perspective and also, I guess, people's perception of what is right and wrong to do with data. Um, I know a while ago, for example, I believe it was a mobile phone network carrier. They were doing some experiments around kind of geofencing, as they called it, geolocationing. The idea being that, you know, when you walk past a top shop, you got a text saying 10% off T-shirts at Top Shop today. In theory, that sounds great, right? You're matching a potential customer need. You know, they know they're interested in that shop. They're in that area. They're getting a benefit from it. They get a discount. But people were freaked out by it. Because you've got a text saying, I know where you are, you're next to this shop. That's scary, right? Realising that these companies know these things about you. So legally, obviously at the time they were allowed to do it, but ethically it felt wrong. And so they, they withdrew from that approach because it didn't feel right to the customers
1: there's all sorts of ethical issues and you're right you know governance framework is so important for an organisation who is looking to become data driven uh, another example would be um, let's imagine that you are a telesales company you sell credit cards let's say okay and uh, you know you analyse the data and, and uh, you know what you're looking for is you're looking for you know calling the people who are most likely to buy what you're selling well actually what it, the data might tell you is every time you phone this one person it turns out that uh, they they buy whatever you, you're you selling every single time. So the model might say, you know, behaviorally what you should do is just phone this one person every day, right? And they'll just buy whatever they want from you. Now, what the reality of the situation might be is that person might be actually quite a vulnerable person who is afraid of saying no on the phone or, or, or something. Right. So I think all of the, you know, anything around data-driven, Approaches that you, you don't then opt out of your business ethical approaches, right? And I think that's really, really difficult. The business ethics almost needs to be stronger if you're going to make these very quick, repeatable decisions based on data. I think the reason that happens sometimes, isn't it, is there's, it's, it's so
2: enticing when you've built this model that says, oh, you can increase sales by. Thirty percent by doing this, and you always get drawn in by the thing, and you forget sometimes about taking that step back and thinking about the business ethics, as you say.
0: Can you use data to help with the business ethics? I mean, you know, like, like we used it in, in previous podcasts, we talked about the taste of coffee being uh, mm-hmm. being affected by the data. I mean, is it possible to to use data in that way?
1: Definitely, yeah. I, I think it goes back to making sure that you understand the question you're solving. So, you know, whenever you're solving a question that has a an impact on the behaviours of the people in the organization organisation, there are constraints, right? There are rules, there are boundaries. And unless you incorporate them into your analytic thinking, then you will go over the boundaries. And, and, And like I say, if you do that, it's quite easy to implement that and forget about the, the boundaries and therefore you've overstepped the mark very, very quickly. Another side to this is as well as impacting your profitability, say, or your, your revenues and so on by making the wrong decisions and, and so on, you could also, of course, impact your, you, you know, your reputation in the market and your view from outside. So for example, a couple of years ago, there was a wonderful project where a technology company released a chatbot onto Twitter. The idea was that they would release this uh, persona that would be a completely automated, AI-driven persona on the internet and would actually start to converse with people. And and it's it's a really interesting project. What actually happened was um, people on the internet were feeding this bot um, fairly uh, horrific, frankly, right-wing views. And and very quickly, the chatbot turned into the sort of... Persona that you probably wouldn't want to interact with, right? They just started insulting people and and using pretty horrific language that is unacceptable in society. So I think it's very easy, in a well-meaning way, overstep a bound and, and be open also to to attack essentially from outside with with examples like that. Talking about ethical use of data,
2: because probably one of the most high-profile initiatives going around recently is the gender pay gap reporting. Mm. So you know, I'm sure everyone would agree, a laudable aim. Look at the equality across pay between genders. Part of the issue with that, though, is the way in which some of the data can be represented and interpreted. So I think it's really important that we understand what the data is telling us, as well as whether it's correct with the data behind it.
0: And talking about data being correct... I want to come now to, to the sort of, you know, obviously the wrong decisions can be made due to bad data, but what about the data, the data's right, but it's simply misinterpreted. I mean, what, what happens then?
2: Yes, there's a brilliant example of this. So as a psychologist called Gerg Girenza. So he produced a book a while ago called Reckoning with Risk, in which he thought about some of these issues with how people interpret results that they're given. So a little bit of a scary example in a way, actually, but they carried out an experiment where they took 160 gynecologists and they gave them a program of training in how to interpret statistical data effectively. And they did a test pre and post that training to kind of gather data and whether that worked or not. So the test they gave was this, so they said that the probability that a woman has breast cancer is 1%, that's called the prevalence. If a woman does have breast cancer, then the probability that she tests positive on a scan is 90%. So if she has it, almost certainly she's going to be tested as positive. If a woman does not have breast cancer, however, then they have a 9% chance of the test being positive. So they're going to come up as positive even though they don't have the disease, what's called a false positive. They asked the doctors to estimate the chance that a woman has breast cancer given that she tested positive. So of those 160 doctors, more than 50% were at 81% chance or higher. The actual answer is roughly 1 in 10. Think about that logically now. So, let's say you have 100 women, one of them is going to have breast cancer, that's our 1% prevalence rate. That one woman will almost certainly test positive. There was a 90% chance of getting a true positive test there. But then there are 99 women without breast cancer. About nine of those are going to test positive, even though they don't have it. So, now we have a population of 10 women nine of which don't have breast cancer and one of which does. So the correct answer is roughly one in 10 or 10% chance that a woman does have breast cancer given they tested positive. Scarily enough, isn't it, that more than 50% of that got that completely wrong? Now, after the training, about 90% got it exactly right and six percent kind of within a few percentage points of that but it just goes to show the importance of understanding how to interpret data properly because
1: those are decisions
2: being made that have a real impact on people's
1: lives i I think it's a really good example there and i think that with the press these days, I think we, we end up in a situation where, you know, anything that can be turned into a front page story, right? So, um, and, and I think there's popular newspapers today that, you know, where there's, there's even websites dedicated to disproving some of the uh, the, the headlines and, and so on. But I think we've got to be incredibly, incredibly careful around this. So, so you know, the story I always come back to is, uh, you know, back in 1995, um, the UK Committee on Safety of Medicines, they issued this warning as to, to about 200,000 practitioners doing medical practitioners in this country to say that this particular new contraceptive pill will double the chance of having blood clots in the, the legs or the lungs. So a really horrific kind of thing, right? So actually doubles the chance 100%. You know, these, this is the information that was actually told to, to uh, practitioners around the, uh, around the UK. But you kind of come back to what, what does that actually mean, well, actually, what had happened is uh, the study had actually looked at seven thousand uh, women who took the you know took the uh, the, the pill, and um, before the pill, they basically had one in one out of seven thousand uh, developed thrombosis, and afterwards, two in seven thousand. So, absolutely, the, the 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 prevalence, you know, that 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 doubled, right? There was a hundred percent increase, but actually, that's one in seven thousand to two seven thousand. So the the absolute risk was still incredibly, incredibly low. But the way it was reported was really kind of like in a way that drove some really bad behaviors. I mean, they believed that one scare led to about 13,000 additional abortions in the UK um, in the following year. And it's a horrific thing to consider. It was because of the misrepresentation. And I think that's going on all the time in our press at the moment where, you know, the sensationalization of of kind of, you know, kind of stories and stuff like that is the the headlines all they want. But actually, this can do real harm in, in, in the world, right?
0: And presumably, that sort of thing, when it happens... That's going to erode our trust in data, in all data, because we're, we're sort of constantly, we're going to start being cynical about it and saying, oh, well, you know, it's probably misinterpreted and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a bit of a, you know, once burned, twice shy sort of thing about this, isn't it? Where people who have believed in data, whether that's a model, whether that's a stat they've read in a book or whatever it might be, and it, it turns out to be false or misleading, they start to mistrust all data potentially or at least all data related to a particular source and that's that's going too far the other way we shouldn't throw out absolutely everything to do with data if it's not always giving us the right answer there are still things we can glean from data that isn't perfect or from stats that aren't perfect i think a great example of people's relative lack of understanding sometimes in data and statistics and what that means for you know accuracy is sampling so I find this is quite a counterintuitive point, I guess, to someone who's not statistically trained. But when you're thinking about creating a sample, it actually doesn't really matter what percentage of the population you talk to. It matters how many people you talk to. So if you go and sample 10,000 people for their height you're going to get a pretty good average height for the UK, you know, providing your sample isn't biased. You're not really going to learn anything from the ten thousand and first person that you haven't learned from the first 10,000. 10,000 people, though, is obviously a tiny fraction of what the UK population is. So counterintuitively, you've got a lot
1: of people. It's a small percentage, but that's still a great sampling approach. I think that's one of the things is that... Bias in sampling, right, is, is, it's such a difficult thing to understand. And you need to have people who actually have the skills to to understand some of the subtleties around this. I, I'll give you an example. So we're working with a, a firm of insurers uh, right now where um, they have a big database and they're trying to work out, you know, whether a house price is correct or not. And the way they do it is they, they do it by actually looking at, uh, matching of houses. Now, unfortunately, they, they only match on houses that are in a particular distance to the original house, right? So they, uh, they, they cut it down on that basis. But it's actually quite a small percentage and they make decisions off it. But straight away, you've, you've biased the entire analysis towards buildings that have a very close neighbour, Right, you know, you, you can introduce bias in all sorts of ways, and I think some of the, the analytical techniques as well can introduce bias. So, for example, um, you know, you, you could do something where, again, in the insurance world, in the car insurance world, let's say we kind of say we're not going to use, let's say, gender as a, a variable to actually build our models, right? So we don't bias based on whether you're male or female in terms of the price you pay. But the analytical techniques that you have these days actually can find to. Distinct clusters in the data, and actually, you, you've essentially biased on gender, even though you didn't have it in your data set at the start. So, so there's so many hurdles around this stuff that you've got to have trained people who understand this stuff and, and can go about things in the right way.
0: And presumably, I'm talking about the the size of the sample and that sort of thing, which which you just mentioned, David, I, I was just thinking about opinion polls and things like that, which which are you know often pretty small samples compared to the size of the Voting electorate as it were but but they're usually accurate aren't they
2: yeah absolutely and the opinion polls and exit polls are a great example because by necessity they keep the numbers of people sampled down as much as possible you know there is a cost attributed to every single person you talk to you know whether that's sending out someone to a voting center or calling someone up whatever it might be so their aim is to get as accurate a number with as few people as possible as you say because they have a well-designed sampling approach, they're able to do that in a way that's unbiased and is accurate.
0: Let's move on to on to what we can what we can do about this in a, in a sense, you know, to make sure these ethical considerations and, and so on and so forth can be taken into account. I mean, what do analysts need to do to try and improve not just the accuracy of the figures but the way they're interpreted and that sort of thing?
2: I think from an analyst perspective, it's about something about training. So understanding the concepts behind the approaches that you're applying, not just blindly clicking buttons and pushing out models. That might be training, educating yourself, that might be leaning on colleagues with that more scientific background, whatever it is. There's a bit of common sense around here as well, right? So if you're throwing out answers that seem too good to be true, they probably are. And again, checking those things with business users before you putting them out there. So. Previously to working here, I, I managed an insights team at an airline, and one of the things we needed to do was create quite a close relationship with the business. So we were presenting them data about their performance in sales, essentially, and that data had some issues. So what we needed to do to build trust between the two parts of the business was surface those issues, have a frank conversation about them, and then put in place fixes or, or considerations to make that better.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I I think another thing, considerationally, from the analyst perspective here is that, you know, they really need to be able to communicate to the business the assumptions and the context in which a solution works, right? It, it, you know, you, what you don't want to do is just have a situation where, you know, a data scientist builds a model, it, but it has very specific connotations, right? Oh, this model is only applicable for this area or these sorts of decisions, or the data that we used was only limited to this sample or this, you know, that kind of stuff. If you, if you just pass on a model and pass on the results without that that context... The moment that's taken into an area that is, you know, out of context or where the assumptions don't hold up anymore, that answer could be completely wrong. And so for me, I think, you know, the analyst role is all about is all about passing on that context, all about understanding the constraints and all about understanding any bias that they might have introduced in their analysis. And, and again, that's why, for me, you know, you you need an analytic governance framework around data science to be able to check for these things and to be able to do peer review and make sure that you know that that we can check each other's work and make sure that it actually is. Uh, you know, a good, honest, ethical piece of work, and the considerations and, and assumptions are being passed on
0: clearly. And is there is there a role for the for the law, for the legal framework around this stuff as well? I mean, there was an awful lot of talk about GDPR six nine months ago. Everybody was getting very sort of uh, worked up about it, and 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 that kind of and then it happened, and now nobody talks about it at all. Uh, yeah.
1: So so GDPR was really quite an important step. But actually, it, it, it fundamentally came down to good practice anyway, right? So it actually, I think it's a is a great opportunity. But we have to be careful because we, we talk a lot about GDPR and the world of data ethics, right? So we kind of talk about the data stuff. And then you end up talking about, you know, the world of business ethics and, and kind of analytic ethics and governance kind of sits right in between. And it can, it can be a real gap, if you like, because, you know, you could absolutely use the right data, so I can't use that data properly, etc. Then you could fit a model That actually then gets implemented in the business and the business ethics don't really you know the business people maybe don't understand the complexities and the assumptions and therefore because you haven't got good a good framework around the analytic piece itself that can cause real problems so yeah absolutely gpr is 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 is, for me is a really good thing you know i think i think companies who pre-gdpr would do not the good practice stuff didn't have much of an impact really in terms of the way they saw that applied but we need to understand where in the flow this sits right this is analytic governance and ethics. This is right in between the data stuff and how you're going to
0: use it. So, Dave, what steps at the end of the day should business leaders be taking to make sure that the, the accuracy of the, of the information they're receiving and, and the ethical side of it as well, and, and of course the legal side?
2: I think the first thing as the consumers of the data, if you like, and by the way I think is applicable to business, but also, you know, wider society as well and in terms of reading newspapers and so on, is especially educate themselves about the type of things they need to understand. So we mentioned about assumptions. So I think a business leader should have a set of questions in their mind every time they're presented with a model or a fact or a stat. If it's a model, one of them should be, what assumptions have you used? Who signed them off? Where did they come from? Do we think they hold for all situations? Having that little checklist in your mind of here are the things I need to check in order to believe in this model or not believe in this model or think it needs further work is really important. It's that sceptical mindset, right? So you're not dismissing what you're being told. You're not taking it as gospel. You're thinking, hmm, data said it's 300% increase. Does that mean... Ten pounds? Does that mean three hundred pounds or three three million pounds? How do I keep asking the questions to get me to the real thing I need to know and validate that it's correct?
0: So the same question to you, Rich. You know what? What, what should business leaders be be doing to make sure they get this right?
1: There's huge value to be had around this. We understand the data-driven future. We understand that in the future, organisations who are able to turn their data into wisdom and, and drive decisions that way, those are the ones that are going to win. Right. So we we get that but we have to go about it properly. For me, the key critical thing for leadership is make sure you've got the right skills in the business. Right Now, that's very, very difficult sometimes because Everyone's a data scientist these days, regardless of their skill set, sometimes, right, in terms, again, you know, you become a data scientist by editing your LinkedIn profile, et cetera. But you really need to focus on having people with the right pedigree, the right educational background, the right analytic background, who've been there, seen it, done it around uh, around these areas, and can give people good advice about bias, about context, about, you know, the use of models and so on. Beyond that, what you need to have is a really solid analytic framework in place to make sure the ethical considerations are applied to your data. Data, to make sure that things are, are, you know are you know the, the models are fit in the right way there's no inherent bias and so I guess for me the key thing for me is, yeah, this is all great, but there's no such thing as a free lunch. You've got to have the right people in place and the right skills and the right knowledge. Otherwise, this can be a dangerous place.
0: Thanks very much, Rich. You've been listening to the Data-Driven Nirvana podcast from Mango Solutions. My name is Dave Harris. I've been talking to Rich Pugh, the chief data scientist and co-founder of Mango Solutions, and Dave Gardner, who leads the data science teams here at Mango. If you want to know more, go to mango-solutions.com. Please keep listening. We'll be back soon with another episode.